Okay. We don't have to do we're recording, Tesco. No, because right we're... next to oh. each other. Record. Recording. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. We are in the same room. We are touching. I'm each touching other. your elbow with my elbow. It's happening right now. My arm with your arm. My soul with your soul. Wow. Uh, I am back. Sarah and I have joined forces, not only as co-hosts, but co-habitators. Co-habitators. Yes. Co- Wait, wait, roommates implies co. This roommates is. I know, but I co-host cohabit. I just was. We are co-hosts who are also cohabitating. Yeah. In the same habitat. Yes. (laughs) Indeed. Yes, our habitat, uh, which is the Twin Cities. And did you know what, Sarah? Yes. It's full of art. What? Yes. Stop it. Let's let's talk about that, shall we? In the news today, we are going to be discussing the very hot-button topic of the Arts and All Museum Salary Transparency 2019 spreadsheets, where at this point of recording, we have 2,259 entries. Wow, all these wow. people being transparent about their salaries. What does it mean? What could this impact could this possibly have? Yeah. Stay tuned here on SOTA. Next, I'm going to be attempting to demystify the age-old question of what is digital art? Specifically. Yes, and you you know, obviously we kind of all have an idea in general what digital art is, but I was inspired by our Soda Projects, which is coming up, uh, by Danelle Cloutier, who works at the crux of sound art and digital art, and so I wanted to talk about some of these denominations and how they differ from each other, how they're the same, what even are they? And we've also featured some digital art artists on the podcast in the past. Example, Dustin Stoich who is a video artist. And we will be talking about video art as well. We will. Excellent. And then Sarah, I believe you had, uh, you said something about an interview, local artist. I don't know if I, I kind of tend to do that. Okay. All right. All right. No, I I did. I did interview an artist. Her name is Amy Rice. Her interview is amazing. That's coming up. You don't want to miss it. Excellent. And Mm -hmm. I would like to take this opportunity to go back to that thing that I said about the Soda Projects. Soda Projects, it's the first one. We're super excited about it. The exhibition is titled Terraforming by a Manitoba artist named Danelle Cloutier. We will be gathering at Boom Island Park at 9 p.m. on Sunday, June 16th. This will be the day after Northern Spark wraps up, so keep that art momentum going. Uh, So Boom Island, uh, you will see us by some kind of light... Something. Something. There um, will be something to direct your attention to where we are physically, and then you should come see us physically, and we will have a thing for you to do there. That thing is, we will all have a community stargazing experience. Terraforming is about exploring the existential loneliness that comes uh, possibly after the search for life outside our own world. Nigh the ephemerality of our very existence. And so we're all going to be existentially lonely together. Uh, Please bring your personal devices, bring headphones, bring a blanket if you wish. We will be there and you will be able to meet us, meet the artists. We are all going to lay back look at the stars, and listen to this digital sound art experience. You can find us on Facebook at State of the Arts Podcast. Please uh, RSVP. You will find the address to Boom Island Park. 
Uh, we will be dropping a pin to our exact location within the park there. Uh, any questions you have can direct it there. Also, Instagram, uh, State of the Arts Pod on Instagram or State of the Arts Podcast. Ask us any questions. Uh, the link to the event is in bio. And we will hopefully see you all tonight. It's completely free. You should bring as many friends as possible. And the blanket just a heads up, is for you to lay on, although this is a completely accessible experience for everyone. Hopefully see you tonight, everybody. Bring everyone you know. We are so looking forward to sharing this experience with you. This week in the news, we're going to be talking about the Arts and All Museums Salary Transparency 2019 spreadsheet. So, as I mentioned before, uh, on the day of recording and time of recording, which is approximately 6 p.m. Uh, a week before this comes out, there are 2,259 entries so far. And this has been circulating for two weeks. By the time that we post this episode, it will have been circulating for three. Um, this On this spreadsheet, all of the entries are published anonymously. This was started by curatorial staff at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and this spreadsheet was created to increase some solidarity among arts workers uh, because many struggle to make ends meet on their salaries alone. And so this is specifically for folks who are employed at museums. I think it is arts in general and museums in general. So if you look mm -hmm. at the spreadsheet, it has nonprofits, it has uh, commercial galleries, things like that, but it also has museums uh, such as science museums, history museums, etc. You can choose to list your specific institution or not. You can give a general description such as East Coast Historical Museum or yeah. uh, Midwestern Contemporary Art Museum, etc. Or you will see Boston Museum of Art, Philadelphia Museum of Art, Yerba Buena, uh, uh, San Francisco Institute of Art, etc. So one thing that this spreadsheet might do is undo some of the secrecy that kind of plagues our industry um, and Salary transparency in general is a, you know, popular topic right now, especially on the subject of women getting paid the same as men. And maybe that would be a, a side benefit to this as well. And actually, in one of our previous episodes, we did discuss the, um, the ratio of specifically women and men employed in the humanities. And we found overwhelmingly that it was a much higher percentage of women than of men in the humanities. Yes, we did. And this kind of reminds me of WAGE, the W-A-G-E, the wage program for artists, but it's kind of a little mini version for arts workers, where this might help uh, set a standard for who should be paid what and where. Because uh, you will see the New York salaries are very similar to small town salaries in more rural areas, etc. But of course, those salaries don't go as far in larger cities as they do in rural areas. Absolutely. Um, so, and this also uh, will point out some really important insights to economic hierarchies that are inside of some of these really big and famous museums. Um, and this is also coming at a time when museum workers are more and more wanting to address these economic inequalities. Um, so in recent years, we see more multi-million dollar expansions instead of uh, raising wages. We're seeing more and more calls to unionize. And there was actually one just recently at the Seattle Museum of Art. 
the Fry Museum in Seattle. The Fry, thank you. Mm-hmm. At the Fry Museum in Seattle, the guards at that particular museum have successfully unionized as of today. Yeah, and I believe um, Mia is unionized, yes. right? The Minneapolis Institute of Art does have a union for both uh, the guard staff and the um, customer service slash administrative staff. And, of course, there has been more and more scrutinization um, over the ethics of institutional funding as well. Um, More and more institutions are relying on contingent labor. These include, like, fixed-term projects, fellowships. Um, So these people are hired on for impermanent amount of times, uh, and the roles are given just as much responsibilities as a full-time staff person, um, but they receive a lower salary, uh, no benefits, they don't have job, long-term job security, and so, of course, that makes this uh, kind of work more precarious. And specifically, we have discussed in the past internships yep. and how that contributes to income and social inequalities within the humanities specifically, and how... Even getting the internship is a subject to your already acquired privilege, um, but also how you are given often the same type of and amount of work as a full-time paid person without having any type of economic benefit, and you are giving, given that work without having any guarantee of a paid position afterwards. And it has been traditionally recognized as a a specific benefit that you are paid in experience rather than money, which is which goes further, I think, in many cases. And so that kind of ties into the, the culture that is internships, contract work, per diem work in the museum field. Go back to our uh, episode on unpaid labor in the arts, and we expand upon this even more. Um, we also mentioned in that episode how a lot of these pos- these positions are requiring lots of investment in education, often requiring masters, PhDs, which come with debt, um, and you know a lot of them have specific specializations, which are hard to attain, uh, especially without very long education. So um, those who have contributed to this spreadsheet um, are definitely hoping that this transparency will lead to some kind of reform um, in salaries. Um, It could also contribute, hopefully, to further diversifying the field um, in terms of socioeconomic categories as well. I've added to the spreadsheet. As have I. Oh, excellent. And this will be linked in our show notes. If you also work in the arts or museum field, you can go to our show notes, find this article, find the spreadsheet, and find where to add uh, your salary, if you so choose. Ultimately, this will be a big help to learn more about the economic diversity of different jobs in the humanities field. So visit our show notes to learn more. everybody hello welcome back hi everybody (laughs) greetings salutations here i am today going to address the topic of what is digital art i'm so sorry for that uh anyways no please continue with the entire explanation (laughs) in that voice people have already stopped listening um let's just go (laughs) bye bye just kidding. We're still no, here. we're still here. We're still here. This is fine. 
As we mentioned in our intro to this episode, we have previously interviewed artists who specialize in a form of digital art, um, either new media or video, like Dustin Stoik, etc. Yes, and for our first soda project, Terraforming by Danelle Cloutier, uh, she is presenting a project that is where sound art and digital art meet. And so I thought this would be a good time to kind of suss out what is digital art? What are some of its breakdowns? You know, it might be good to just establish a good base uh, so we can... You know, we can move on from there. So I am pulling a lot from Tate. Tate has a wonderful definition section on their website. So I'm just going to start off with what is digital art? What is it? Let's start broadly. It is not art created with the fingers. What? Surprisingly. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. That just came to me. And I that was really it. good. Thank I you. like that a lot. <laughs> thank you. That was really good. <laughs> Digits. <laughs> so digital art uh, describes technological arts. Um, so these have fluid boundaries that offer many possible interpretations within the terminology, which I will get into presently. Uh, the term digital art and new media um, can usually be used interchangeably, but there are some nuances. So digital art often kind of has two camps, object-oriented and then process-oriented visuals. So in the first, uh, the digital technologies are a means to an end. So they function as a tool for the creation of objects. Um, so you use digital processes to create things like painting, photos, print sculptures, etc. You know who uses digital arts in this way? Who? Kahindi Wiley. Yes, he sure does. Yes, he sure does. Check out our most recent episode previous to this one. Getting Wiley with Galgan. All right. And so the second way is that the technology is the art itself. So the artist explores the possibility that a technological medium provides. So this category is a little more associated with the term new media. Um, and it refers to any and all computable art, digitally curated, stored, distributed. So it relies on the digital in order to be created and to exist and for you to see it, interact with it, hear it, what have you. Whereas the former is using technology that creates a tangible object. So you use technology to create a painting or the second kind is it is a digital work that relies on it being presented in a digital means. And this is an important distinction to make because many artists here in the 21st century use digital forms to create their paintings or their sculptures, which have a more traditional art outcome. Fun fact alert! The first use of the term digital art was in the early 1980s when, a co when computer engineers devised the paint program. Paint! Yes. Happy memories. R.I.P. Paint. R.I.P. Paint. It's dead, right? It's dead. It's yeah, dead. yeah, it's dead. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So digital art can be computer generated. It can be scanned or drawn uh, using things like a tablet and a mouse. Um, this also includes when artists manipulate images uh, from film, such as photos and videos. Um, and so even some digital art has become interactive allowing the audience um, a certain amount of control over the final image. So, as Sarah mentioned, uh, video art is often a denomination of digital art. So, how is it different? How is it a subcategory? Well, simply, my friends, video art 
involves the use of video and or audio data and relies on moving pictures. Example, Christopher Corey Allen, whose final images are altered digitally and either printed or in their final form are videos that you listen to and thus are interacting with in a different way than what you previously described. That is a key use of both kind of camps of digital art that are both object-oriented and also the ones that that need to exist in digital form as they were made in digital form. Mm-hmm. Harken back, so to listeners, to our Christopher Corey Allen episode. Review of their show at Hair and Nails Gallery in South Minneapolis. So the denomination of uh, digital arts that we mentioned in my <coughs> thesis, sorry. Uh, <laughs> so the the Tate defines internet art um, as a term that is used to describe a process of making art using a computer in some form or another, whether downloaded imagery that is then exhibited online or to build the programs that create the artwork. So internet art has been around since the creation of the internet. Of the internet. In the early 90s. And so this is art that requires the internet either to be in its making, in its display, or both of these that it needs to be made and also displayed upon the internet. And thus it makes it a very recognizable type of art as well. Absolutely. Um, So it kind of can have that very early uh, 90s aesthetic. Um, I would recommend that you look at one of the uh, artists that was in my thesis exhibition called Faith Holland um, and her piece VVVVVV, which kind of makes a WWW. Oh! Ah, To kind of see the the effect. Um, However, that internet art can also be very highly rendered, very intricate, very uh, responsive as well. So there's, you know, it's a wide range of things. Um, And then also a term that you may have heard but are kind of confused with is post-internet art, such as I mentioned previously and my kind of realm. Uh, Post-internet refers to a current trend in art and criticism that's concerned with the impact of internet on art and culture. So it takes cues from the understanding of postmodernism as a reaction or a rejection of modernism. So we all know postmodernism. It is modernism has happened and now we are beyond it, right? Uh, Not beyond it in terms that we are shedding it, but beyond it as in like it has happened. We have all that knowledge and we are, you know, proceeding. So in that way, post-internet does not imply a time after the internet. Like we are not saying the internet is over. We're done with the internet. Bye. Yes. That is not it. Uh, That would be more of like an apocalyptic type of situation. (laughs) I would really love to see what art is like. Oh my gosh. I had never considered that. I think about the apocalypse all the time. And you think about art all the time. How have these two never... I don't know. Oh my goodness. We'll we'll never know. We'll just have to wait. We're going to run a gallery in the apocalypse. Anyway. Anyways. New idea. I mean, aren't we already? <laughs> Social criticism. That's so meta. All That's right. Anyways, meta. I have been. I this is my third attempt to finish the sentence. <laughs> um, this isn't a time after the internet, but rather a time about the internet. Like the internet has had its awakening, and now our culture is deep entrenched in the internet. Our culture is inseparable from the internet, and thus, like our art 
at any point could be and probably is affected by the internet or influenced in some way, even if you are a clay sculptor, there is a very, very, very highly likely chance that your art is somehow influenced by the internet. That brings me to uh, this crux of where sound art and digital art meet. Sound art is basically defined uh, by the Tate as art which uses both sound as its medium, as in what it's made out of, and as its subject, what it is about. And so for terraforming, uh, Danelle Cloutier uses digital means to capture sound, manipulate it, and make it into a sound art piece. And where is she getting the sound? Uh, Danelle sources her sounds from everyday sounds, uh, such as cars passing by, which she records digitally, sounds that she makes with her hands that she records digitally, uh, by music, by plugging in an electrical instrument, from recording her voice digitally, and then using software to manipulate these sounds. For her project Terraforming, she sourced sounds from NASA's recordings from space, where NASA recorded the vibrations in space and then transposed them into sounds uh, that humans can hear. So, Danelle has taken digital sounds that were recorded by NASA, altered them digitally, and then produced a new sound experience. Yes. And precisely. that is the work. There is a realm where digital musics and sound art meet. So these are works that combine sound art and media. Um, so computer compositions rating from electroacoustic to experimental music, as well as sound installations. So uh, one division, subdivision of this is sound and new media mixing together, which encompasses audiovisual performance, sonic sculptures, intermedia video uh, and film soundtracks, installation sound space projects, radio works, net music, generative musics, etc. Really cool stuff. Um, and then, of course, there's another kind of subgenre that, that leans more into, I think, the music realm, but can also be used as art as well. So that's electronica. We're all kind of familiar with that form. So this is a lot of, like, dub, techno, microsound, ambient, minimal, just noise, uh, mondo exotica, uh, mashups, glitch, and plunderphonics. Uh, that is a new one for me. Um, and then the last kind of subdivision is uh, computer compositions, such as algorithmic, acousmatic, and experimental sounds. I recently learned what the word acousmatic means. Define, please. Acousmatic sound is sound that is heard without an originating cause being seen. And this also includes um, analog and electroacoustic methodologies combined. Um, also, the use of voices and acoustic or amplified instruments um, are allowed as well. So um, that speaks heavily, I think, to Danelle's work. Um, so I hope this disambiguated uh, a little bit of digital art as this umbrella term. And then also, these, these are but a few places, a few things that exist under this very wide domain. This was but a primer. This was but a very small snippet of some of the most common, some of my favorites, and some of the most relevant to sort of projects uh, within the, you know, day that this is coming out, because terraforming is tonight. Come join us.
Come join us. It's going to be super fun. It, yeah, and take your new knowledge of digital art, bring it with you as your base, and then uh, sit back and enjoy our community stargazing sound experience. And please bring friends who have never heard of this type of art. Bring some people who have never heard of art before. Yeah. Bring, bring some people. Bring who, those people. Bring those people. Bring some people who have never heard of soda before. We are so excited uh, to see you there, everybody. Uh, shall we kick it over to a decidedly non-digital kind of experience? Yes. <laughs> uh, let's let's go to my interview with Amy Rice. What do you, do you want to do it now? I want to do it right now. now. I am here with artist Amy Rice. Amy Rice is a visual artist uh, living and working in the Twin Cities. Amy, thank you so much for inviting me into your lovely studio space. I feel like I could live here forever. It's beautiful and open and sunny. Thank you. Thanks for coming. <laughs> so would you please start me off by telling telling us about your your background and how you started to get into art as a practice? Okay. Um, I grew up in rural southern Wisconsin, long line of dairy farmers on both sides. And 4-H was a huge thing in my family. Every year we had to pick no more than three projects and two had to have to do with farming and one could not have to do with farming. So I picked art and my family was very supportive of me doing art, meaning, you know, acrylic paints and a canvas and I'd get one and then that would be the art that I did for the county fair. And often my art went to the state fair. And so that was pretty much my experience, you know, growing up, making art, enjoying it. I've always wanted to be an artist ever since I was a little kid. But when I went to college, my parents were not supportive of art as something that was practical. I don't have an, an art degree. I don't have any technical art training. I have an undergraduate degree in sociology from Augsburg college, um, university now. When I graduated from Augsburg University, I was ready to be a farmer again. I had decided I wanted to be an organic vegetable farmer, much to my parents' dismay. And I moved back to Wisconsin and I, I did farm for a while. I've always made art. I think there was a, a break in college where I didn't make any art. But as soon as I was done with college, I was back to not making art so much like here's a painting but art like documenting my life. Like here's a drawing of our new wood stove. Here's a drawing of the new tomato package. And when I started taking my produce to the markets, I would take little sketches, little charcoal sketches, oil pastel sketches of the process of growing the tomatoes and, and whatnot. And those sold way better than my vegetables. <laughs> Just way better. So um, at some point, you know, also I was poor. I was really poor and living in the country. And I came to the conclusion if I didn't move back to the Twin Cities and use my degree, it would, it would be worthless. And I thought, well, in the cities too, I could pursue this, this art thing. I could pursue it. I, I went about it in a very um, planned way. I, bought, I got a bunch of books at the library, like how to be an artist, how to create a body of work how to document your artwork, how to approach a gallery. Like, you know, this is before the internet. Yes. So, you know, it was the library, but I had these books and that's what I did. I made a body of work. And the first place I approached was Pizza Luce 
Oh, Palmer's Bar and Pizza Luce at the same time, and I had the, my first solo art show at Palmer's Gallery on the West Bank, and then my second one the month later was at Pizza Luce um, in Uptown, the new Uptown Pizza Luce, <laughs> which is now not new at all. No. <laughs> but, um, so that was the beginning of that, and it, it turned out pretty well. That, that was the most ambition I really had in terms of showing artwork. Like, I did not... My ambition was not to have a gallery show. My ambition to, was not to have my own studio and to have my own art practice. My ambition was a body of work I could hang at a coffee shop and have a party. That's kind of kind of how I got where I am now. Mm -hmm. People liked my work and I kept making it. And I eventually did have a gallery approach me and then another. And I was eventually able to, you know, leave my day job and do this. It's been nine years that I've been a full-time artist. Tell me about your practice in general. Well, most of the art that I make is almost, almost 100% is inspired by my day-to-day -day life. So whatever, I mean, whatever's going on. I got a new puppy, then there's like six months of puppy art, like it or not audience. It's just that kind of thing. Um, I get a new truck, there's a painting of a truck. You know, I'm a wannabe flower farmer right now. I'm, you know, my husband and I are trying to start a business that we can work on once we're retired. It's kind of a long, long-term thing. But, you know, I've always painted flowers. Like, there's always been flowers. But there have been flowers that are kind of like, this represents a flower. And like, <laughs> now my flowers are like, this is definitely a zinnia. This is definitely a straw flower. This is, you know, definitely this is definitely that. So that's the like the inspiration part, but the actual art making part is my art making process is complicated. It's, it takes a lot of steps. So like first I you know I draw I draw out I hand draw whatever whatever it is that I'm whatever it is I'm working on, and then all my art starts as some type of print making method. So either I cut a stencil or I carve a lino print like a relief print, or I use, like, I have this tiny little Japanese screen printing kit called a Goko printmaker. Um, so, but all of those take a lot of preparation to, to just to get to that point. So, like, that's the, that's step A, and, and it's, like, dependent on a lot of, it's dependent on things like weather, and if I can, like, adequately ventilate my workspace that day, and if you know like I currently I'm a, I have a little bit of a cold and so like I don't want to mess with my lungs and so there's like just like I'm kind of at a I'm kind of held up right now on a, a project because mm -hmm. the next step is cutting a stencil and I think it's a bad idea for me um to cut the stencil because I, I use a burning tool and in plastic and rust I use a respirator I'm safe but like still like That's nonetheless I, I feel like that I need to hold up on that a little bit so then once that is done, then that's kind of like the fun part for me after that, because a stencil can be, it can be a, like any color I want. A person in my stencil can be any color I want them to be. The truck can be any color. The flower can be any color. It can be cut out and rearranged with another stencil I made at another time. It can be on wood or fabric or paper, antique love letters. It can, you know, there's just you know, a lot of different possibilities. What I'm hearing right now is that actually your works are, they start out from life, so they're identifiable, but then how you represent them changes yeah. over the course of your process. Exactly, yeah. And I'm, the process that you're describing to me, I mean, I knew it was intense. Mm -hmm. How did you land on that? 
really? <laughs> Tell me. Oh, well, I just, um, when, Chris Stain is an artist from, I think he's from New York City, and around, it's, it's been a long time. I mean, I've been cutting stencils for close to 20 years now. And previous to that, like, I was dipping my toe into a little bit of, like, I had, like, my fine art, but not, like, graffiti, like, I wasn't, you know, bombing things with spray paint cans, but little stickers. I had this little campaign. This was politeness campaign. So I worked, I worked um, with folks at that time. Um, I had an art program for folks with disabilities. We, I had, I taught a social skills class, and the social skills class was things like make eye contact say hello to a peer and I just started realizing in the real world like everybody could use some advice like this and so um I made a lot of art that was made for to put out in public that were social skills basically and it's something there was some like overlap that happened at some point and I couldn't use those methods like the stencil spray paint methods for fine art at some point, I had felt like there was two worlds. There was like graffiti, and then there was fine art. And that artist I mentioned, Christine, was like one of the first artists. I was like, that's not necessarily the case. I don't think my art looks like graffiti anymore, and I don't think people even really recognize often that there's spray paint in it. And there's, I call it enamel. <laughs> Why? Why? It's enamel spray paint. Oh, okay. So you're just all right. And there's this, there's some stigma. There's still some stigma about that. Yes, there you know, is. I'm a 50 year old woman. You know, I just like mm-hmm. people are a little like what? <laughs> I actually, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we were to, I can totally see that. If if I were to have introduced you as an artist who works with spray paint, exactly, there'd be a completely different interpretation of what your work looks some, like. I had some feedback. Uh, it was probably like eight years ago now from a major. I'm gonna just say a major institution that I applied to that mm-hmm. really liked my work but had a lot to say about the consequences of them showing a graffiti artist. And I was like, what are you talking about? They were like, well, Had they seen your me. work? They had seen my work. They really um, connected my work with art organizations in the Twin Cities I'm not connected with, like Intermediate Arts, which I had a ton of respect for. Yes. But I, I, I you know, that, that wasn't my gig, you know. Right. So... Anyway, so enamel. Let's talk about this piece. So, okay. So titles. Shall I just try to describe it? Yes, let's let's do that. Well, so I'll start by saying that last year I grew straw flowers on my wannabe flower farm. What are straw flowers? Straw flowers are those are straw flowers that you can see that the I can, but I'll post I'll post images um, when we do the, straw the Instagram thing. Are, uh, Everlasting flowers, they um, are a desert flower, but like I did nothing to preserve the flowers that you see. They just, they just preserve. They just look like they did the day they were cut. They just dry. They just dry. They're just, they're, they're amazing. They're my, they were my favorite thing last summer. My straw flower harvest was amazing. And I, um, I made a bunch of straw flower wreaths and made my husband super happy that we sold a bunch because then that's like real profit on a real flower farm. And then I ran out and I was like, I wanted to keep going. And so I cut a lino print of the straw flowers. Actually I cut one fourth because if you do four, then you can make a you can make a whole circle. So um yeah, so I cut a quarter of it. I had a good plan and the plan didn't quite work out. But the particular piece that we're looking at right now is printed on a seed bag that's for my grandparents family farm 
And I have a, my uncle Don gifts me so many amazing things that to make art on. And I never know if I can make art on it when he gives it to me, but like 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 feed cloth bags or rusty rusty containers, wooden boxes, old um hymnals from the family church. Just you know, and I'm always like, thanks, Don. And it always seems like I'm always like, you know, I gotta store this thing in the basement. Yeah. But it almost always turns out. And this is an example of a thing that it turned out really well. So I printed, so it's basically like a picture of the straw flower wreath on a seed bag from my family farm. I made quite a few of them because it's a print. Um, you know, I can make a lot. Um, then I printed the print onto felt, nice felt. I have a thing for nice, like nice wool felt. So yeah, so it's crafty. Um, it's a little different for me. I like to go down like a little crafty lane every now and then. And um, I think I think it helps my I think it helps my practice. I think it helps me just learn more what what can I do with um, the methods I use. And so this is with fabric, and it's you know <laughs> fabric and a glue gun. <laughs> some antiques and some wool felt but I, I you know I really like how it turned out oh I see so the colors that I'm seeing that are interspersed along the print are actually pieces of felt, felt yeah that I printed on those and like cut them out yep. and then I glue gun them to the to the larger piece and you know that like you know you never know on the on the social medias when I put art out there like what people will like or not like and like every now and then I'm just like, this is a piece everyone's gonna love and like I you know, everyone's like, nah. But that piece in particular, which I was kinda like, here's a craft I made, I'm just gonna just throw it out there, see what you guys think. People like loved it. Like just loved it. So I don't know, I love it too actually. So I'm um it's a winter thing. Like I won't be doing any more of those like soon. But yeah. it's like just the method is kind of like a a winter winter method. So, Amy, do you have anything upcoming or anything going on right now that, that people could go and see your work? Yes, I currently have artwork up at the Virtue Cafe, um, and I'm also in a group show coming up at Groveland Gallery. Oh, it opens in July. Okay, it's a summer show. It's a summer show. It's a okay. group show. It's called, uh, it, it has to do with North, and um, I'm excited. I'm pretty excited about that, and um, I'm doing artwork about bears because I just saw a bear <laughs> thank you so much mm -hmm. for for speaking with me and I'm just I'm so grateful that you shared as much as you did with me about your artwork and your practice and you're wonderful oh thank you thanks so much <laughs>
And as always, our music is provided by the Von Tramps. <laughs>